Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I'm good. I'm not too bad. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, it's very nice to not have a super dry mouth while recording. Yeah, true. This is our first episode since Ramadan ended. Um, and it is nice to be able to sip some water and just like not be super hangry and stressed and kind of brain dead. It's like, it's refreshing. It's very nice. I feel like I'm still readjusting back into the the regular eating schedule. I feel like I am accidentally skipping a meal i feel like i need to get back into uh, actually eating meanwhile i immediately went back to like eating far more than i should every mm. single day so whatevs <laughs> my buddy was like yay back to normal i have not had trouble adjusting to eating at all <laughs> um but yeah well how was eid for you mitch because like Last year, Mitch did eat with us, but it was COVID, and so we couldn't really see anyone. It was pretty quiet. This year, he spent it with me and, like, maybe half my family. Not not everybody, because we still had, like, I think a 20-person restriction. But, yeah, how'd you find that, Mitch? It was fun. So much yummy food. It was fun just to eat, uh, to see everyone. Yeah. It was it was, it was uh, much bigger. I mean, that that's absurd to me that that's, like, not seeing... Or your family. Cause, That's like half my family. Yeah, I was going to say, with the 20-person limit, you could fit my family like two and a half times. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I mean, it was great. And it was it was exciting, especially after this Ramadan, which I did find to be a little bit more difficult than uh, than last year. So, it just makes the celebration uh, even more exciting. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed just like being able to see people and like just socialize a little bit. Uh, yeah, and what else is new? Oh, I have started my new job at Pedestrian yeah. TV, which is really exciting. I just finished my first week because we're recording on a Saturday now. We've changed our recording schedule at the moment uh, to accommodate my new work. But yeah, it was really good. And I don't know, maybe I wasn't expecting it to be amazing just because Australian journalism is very white. And um, I guess I'm kind of used to just being stressed and feeling a little alienated all the time and like never being completely comfortable. And that's not even a reflection of any past workplace I've been. It's just what Australian media is like for a lot of women of color. Like it just is difficult to be surrounded by a new cycle that is hostile to you. Um, so I was like maybe a little bit stressed, maybe like a bit apprehensive, but it was so lovely and everybody was so nice and the team is so welcoming and I'm just like, this is great. Like, I feel like they've been really good and like listened to me and been like really patient with teaching me new stuff. And it's just like, maybe I shouldn't be like so impressed to just like have a nice workplace because that should be a normal thing, but I am and it was great and I'm, I'm going to take that. <laughs> I'm going to be happy with that. Anyway, we, you guys didn't get an episode earlier this week because I was working. So instead, you are going to get an extra long one <gasps> today. Because We just- suspect. We never know exactly how it's going to turn out. Yeah. This could end up being 30 minutes and we just like, whoops. We are really bad at predicting we, how yeah, long an episode is going to be. 
But that being said, we're going to squeeze in two topics into this episode instead of one because it's just been like a pretty intense news couple of weeks. There's a lot going on at the moment. And since we weren't really around to commentate last week and there's still so much stuff we want to talk about, we're just going to cram it all into one episode and hope it works out. Maybe before I introduce our topics, I just want to do a little bit of a catch-up, just some contextualizing. I imagine all of you at the moment are very aware about what is happening in Palestine because it has been everywhere, which is incredible, can I just say, because, like, I mean, I've been pro-Palestine for a very long time. I think also just because I'm Muslim and this is, like, the one issue in the Muslim community that we are all pretty united upon Um, And so, like, I've always been aware about what's happening in Palestine and been really passionate about it. My family's really passionate about it. But I think a lot of people, especially a lot of, like, Aussies who, like, aren't Muslim or aren't Arab, like, don't really know a lot about Palestine and aren't super conscious of what's going on and maybe have never been that interested in actually finding out either just because, like, there's this really weird shroud of, like, it's complicated. You know, the the Arabs are always fighting. Like, there's just this weird, like, nobody wants to talk about it. Um, and yet, despite that, the news has just exploded regarding Palestine. Oh, God, pun not intended. That sounds so bad. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just going to keep talking. All right, we'll move on. <laughs> we'll move on. Um, look, the situation has been incredibly fucking dire, as it always has been, uh, with Israel just bombing the absolute shit out of children and media towers and homes and everywhere they shouldn't be according to international law and it's been horrific and tragic but I think this level of violence especially at a time where we have the social media that we do and we are becoming an increasingly globalized kind of population means that like the world is watching the world is watching Israel and Palestine in a way that it's never done before and the kind of commentary that we've been receiving and just like the attention that it's having and the fact that social media is on it and the fact that people, I mean, Paris Hilton tweeted hashtag free Palestine. So that's the world we're living in at the moment, which is both bizarre and also like kind of incredible that like that was even a thing. I mean, she's look, she has since deleted that tweet unsurprisingly, but it existed. And that is crazy. Yeah. Until her PR manager was like, <gasps> too divisive. But I was going to say, but it really, it isn't that divisive. And that's what's so incredible about it. I feel like in a way, we're really uniting. Because I'm just remembering, like, two years ago when we went to a pro-Palestine protest, there was, like, 80 people there. And now, the other week, there's a protest with, what, 15,000 people? Yeah, it's, it's massive. And it is really beautiful, despite the tragedy, that so many people are, like, taking a stand. Because something that I've seen from a lot of, like, people in Palestine, Palestinians that are talking about what's happening to them in the media, what they've asked for more than anything else, more than donations, more than your fucking well wishes, is to, like, just publicise what's happening to them because the biggest killer right now is the fact that nobody talks about Palestine. The biggest, the, the easiest way to just let Israel get away with what they're doing is to not talk about it. And so they've really been calling for people, just like everyday people, literally anybody to not forget about it and to like tweet or post or whatever, talk about it with your friends constantly and keep the discussion alive because that is how they're going to get where they need to go. And I think we're seeing some radical shit happening right now. I really believe that like some kind of big change is going to come. This is the most attention that I've ever seen Palestine receive. And the fact that so many high profile people are talking about it 
and are actually talking about the because something that I think a lot of people don't talk about with Palestine, even when they eventually get to the point where they talk about the fact that what Israel is doing to them is obviously human rights abuses and illegal and international law. Uh, but people often don't talk about the settler colonialism of the situation and the fact that Palestine is occupied territory and the fact that Palestinians are currently being colonized. Like this is a colonizer issue. Nobody used to talk about that. And I feel like that is even becoming something that a lot of people who maybe didn't even know what Palestine was a year ago are like getting into, like everybody is getting into discussions on genocide and colonialism and ethnic cleansing. And it's just, wow. Like, I don't know. I hate to sound too glib about a really serious situation, but it, it is good to see so many people give a shit. It is good to see like momentum growing. At the time that we're recording now, there's currently been a ceasefire. Uh, which and I think that's important to mention because the situation could be very different uh, by the time this episode releases. Yes, the, we're recording four days before release, so things could change a lot between now and then. At the moment, there is a ceasefire, but I just wanted to issue a quick comment on people do not get complacent because a ceasefire doesn't mean anything, really. Like, there was a ceasefire every time Israel did this. It's you know, This has been happening in the Gaza Strip for fucking like 73 years or something like there'll be a ceasefire and then they'll start again inevitably and i think we need to not get complacent and not just think oh good it's over they've stopped fighting yay because it's not that simple like even if they stop bombing palestinians they're still starving them they're still medical apartheid like these people are still in an open-air prison they're still besieged like we can't just like be thinking it's fine now it's not fine now and it won't be fine until we free palestine so yeah, just let's let's all keep on top of it. Look, the situation may be different by the time this comes out, but I just want to remind everybody not to get too excited if Israel's like, okay, we're going to stop bombing Palestine because there is so much more to it. And even if they're not bombing Palestine, Palestine is still occupied territory where people are still being starved and killed in ways that aren't bombings. So just be on top of it. But speaking of Palestine, I think I'm going to introduce our topic for today because it is like tangentially relevant. We'll introduce two topics today. So <gasps> maybe I'll do like... A brief intro for both, and then we'll move into the first one. All right, sounds good. The first topic that we're going to talk about today is actually selective activism. Specifically, though, like to narrow it down a little bit, people who weaponize their identity or mental illness to avoid being held accountable for their silence on political topics. That is a bit of a mouthful, but I think it's actually something that really needs to be talked about right now and is maybe coming to the forefront of a lot of conversations because of Palestine and because Palestine is being talked about so much, it's actually very obvious these days when somebody is being silent about it. Um, and I think there's been some interesting discourse popping out of that. After we talk about selective activism, we will be talking about topic two, which is centering around racism in like hospitals and among frontline workers, I guess in like the medicine scene, but specifically about a little girl called Ashwarya who was seven years old. She died in Perth about a month ago in a hospital after, I guess, not really being treated for her illness. And there's kind of been just a bit of a massive shitstorm after that politically and in the news that I really want to talk about. But yeah, let's let's start with selective activism. Let's get into it. Someone asked me a week ago, to comment on a post by Jamila Jamil regarding her initial silence about Palestine. I will say she did end up commenting on Palestine. I think she's actually maybe put up a few posts now being pro-Palestine. So I'm not saying she has never talked about it. But initially, she put up a post about not talking about Palestine. And I found the conversation around that post very interesting and very topical. And I think that Instagram post is actually really emblematic of a very common thing people do to justify their absence in political spaces. So 
So to give you some context, I'm just going to describe the post for you. So it's a navy blue tile and in white writing it says, regarding forcing women who are already online targets to make themselves bigger targets due to global conflicts, war and genocide. And then that leads into the Instagram caption, which is a bit long, but I'm going to read it to you because I think it's very interesting. It says, listen, I get it. I truly do. You want and need help and attention for your cause. You want to know that people see and care about what is happening. But more often than not, it is always the ones, mostly women, who speak up and out most about many subjects already, normally black women or women of colour and queer people, who are most pressured to take on the entire world's other problems too, rather than our powerful straight-slash-white-slash-male counterparts who do, frankly, fuck all ever about anything. You expect them to not care, so you don't pressure them. You can see we care, so you demand us taking on your issue. It is entirely understandable logic, but it's not realistic, nor is it fair on us. We are already moving targets because of the issues we already take on. When women, in particular, speak out about war, we are sent horrifying, personal, and often terrifying private abuse, almost entirely from men. This is the experience of a lot of my friends and myself. The choice to not speak up about every single war, every single injustice, every single crime against humanity on Earth doesn't mean we don't know, don't care, or aren't helping or donating privately. It just means there is only so much an individual can take on meaningfully. I am, of course, always against military and police assault of innocent civilians. I also want to point out to the men messaging me in DM that I'm useless or a coward for not speaking up about what you want me to. When I go back through your messages to me over the past few years, there is no mention of support from you for the things I fight for, like the safety of women in India or the safety of black trans women in America or gay rights in Russia, you've normally just commented on my legs. As a mental health advocate, I advocate also for my own peace. I wish I was a superhero who could take on the world's issues by myself, but I'm not. I'm an actress with a past of mental illness doing my best to be helpful to people in the ways I know how. I also wish that men weren't so violent towards women who speak out. Interesting. Interesting. I'm just going to repeat that last like couple of sentences again because that's probably the part that I'm the most interested in. As a mental health advocate, I advocate also for my own peace. I wish I was a superhero who could take on all the world's issues by myself, but I'm not. I'm an actress with a past of mental illness doing my best to be helpful to people in the ways I know how. Okay, so a follower asked me to talk about this post, and I actually did see it before she messaged me about it, and I did think there was something off about it and I didn't like it and I just kind of ignored it because I was like fuck it it's Jimmy Lajmil like I really don't expect that much from her <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know who Jimmy Lajmil is she's a celebrity she's an actress she's probably most well known from her role in The Good Place she's also a pretty fierce advocate for like body neutrality um, and just kind of politics around body and self-esteem and mental health However, there, there are controversies around her because like Jamila Jamil grew up with an eating disorder and she also had a physical disability at some point and she also has a past of mental illness and so she's been through a lot and that informs a lot of her activism. But she has been accused, especially by black women and especially by fat black women, uh, of taking up space in conversations that sh- they don't feel she currently has the relevance to take up. At the moment, Jamila Jamil is the beauty standard she is a tall skinny beautiful celebrity that like models and has been on magazine covers and whatnot and that's not to I guess say that she hasn't had the experiences that she's had but there are conversations especially among more marginalized women that Jamila Jamila needs to take a step back and needs to do less talking more amplifying 
Uh, this has been an ongoing criticism of her for like fucking years and there's lots of like Twitter politics around her and there were like recent controversies of again her taking up space where she shouldn't be because she was in the ballroom scene for a while as well she was gonna host like a new ballroom TV show and people were just like why are you hosting it this is a space for like mostly black trans people (laughs) like you don't belong here Uh, so there's you know controversies of her kind of being in spaces that she shouldn't be which is relevant because that's kind of why I saw that post and thought, I don't fucking care about you. <laughs> but I saw, because a follower sent to me, some really interesting criticism of this post by a Twitter user by the, um, their username is at Queer Socialism. I'm going to read you their tweets because I think it kind of sums it up and then I'll expand on it a bit more. So they attached screenshots of Jamila's post and then said, Jamila Jamil somehow managing to expose her narcissism and self-serving, well-meaning, milquetoast liberal politics by turning the prospects of speaking out on settler colonialism and genocide into a women of colour don't owe you shit sentiment. It's truly bittersweet. The thing is, you can always just not say anything. But these people are such narcissists that they feel the need to justify and speak out about their unwillingness to speak out on things that will threaten their class standing. It's incredible. I love bourgeois, imperialist, self-serving, feel-good squalor feminism. That's pretty brutal. (laughs) I know. It's rough. Like, if I was Jamila Jamila, I don't know how I would come back from that. But I am very interested in this because I think the tweet is right, as harsh and brutal and roasty as it is. I think somebody in Jamila Jamil's position doesn't really have a right to say the things that she said. And I know that's going to sound a little bit contentious as for, at first, especially because she's talking about being a woman of colour and her mental health and her background and how it's hard to comment on everything all the time. And, like, just, you know, if we talked about those, like, just, like, out of context, there is absolutely nothing wrong with any of those things. And it's all very true. But Jamila Jamila, by putting that post up, leaves an implication that we're all of the same class which is not true like there is a very big difference between a mentally ill woman of color who is like a random civilian on twitter being told off for not talking about a certain issue and jamila jamil who makes her living off of being a celebrity and a commentator like she makes her living off her platform there is like a vast power imbalance here and there is a complete difference in even just access to things like mental health support and medical care and literally everything because she has money. And I think it's really important to talk about that difference because this is a really good example, I think, of like just a little bit of gaslighting and just a bit of weaponizing your identity and your past, especially in regards to mental health, in order to not be held accountable for your actions. Look, Jamila Jamila, like I said, did eventually talk about Palestine, but I think that's probably in a way reinforcing what I want to say about this because I guess she was capable after all and talking about Palestine once it became really popular and people like Paris Hilton were talking about it. But until then, she wasn't going to comment on it. And I don't really buy that it was for mental health reasons. I well and truly believe it's because she didn't want to threaten her class standing like that Twitter user said. 
because it's a contentious issue and because it would have threatened her position as like the woke woman of color because if she was going to upset a certain subset of her followers it would have drastic impacts on her income especially when a lot of your money is made through like your campaigns ads people viewing your interviews people listening to your podcast like you need that social currency to survive as a celebrity or an influencer or whatever like her role as somebody with a large platform requires a followership and requires a followership that is loyal and that will consume her content and i just don't i really don't believe that the reason she didn't talk about it is because like oh it's just rough on my mental health and i don't want to give my i don't i don't want men to message me about these violent things because you know what men are going to do that to her anyway like she is a woman of color who is a celebrity like she is getting the hate i am a nobody and i get the trolls like this happens all the time anyway and what you do and don't talk about is actually not going to affect your trolls very much, especially when you are at the like level of famous that Jamila Jamil is. And I'm just not convinced by her argument because I also think, in a way, it is like very dismissive of women of colour who do talk about politics and women of colour with mental illnesses who do talk about politics. Like There are plenty of young black women, for example, who are struggling with mental illnesses that are talking about politics because they have to. Because they don't have the fucking privilege to just opt out of a conversation because it's exhausting for them. And these are like regular people. Imagine having the resources and the platform and the money that Jamila Jamil has. It's not a fucking adequate excuse. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like, I I honestly feel like often we expect too much from celebrities and we deny them any sense of humanity. And they're just like these talking heads uh, with no essence behind them. And I also agree that often politics can be difficult. Like you can't focus on every issue because so many people would just, it would legitimately send you into, and it does, uh, just a cycle of depression that is going to become so debilitating that you're actually not going to be able to take any action on the world. Like you do have to, in some ways, limit your scope. Yeah, there is an element of self-care and sometimes not talking about yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, even just doing this podcast, I feel like sometimes it can be like, okay, like I just need to take a break for a bit. Um, but it's different when that celebrity aspect has been, uh, and your identity as a celebrity has been built upon you taking this commentator position that I am going to talk about the issues that no one else is talking about. I am going to stand up for that. And then only do that when the issues are like relatively well agreed upon and not contentious at all. And I think the fact that she did end up talking about Palestine, like you said, shows that, well, actually you could have spoken about it and also did you wait until the issue wasn't too contentious and it, it was clear that everyone agreed uh, on what was right and what was wrong in the situation before you said anything? Yeah, and I just, I think it's one of those situations where I know it's complicated. And again, look, I am usually the first person to say we fucking don't need the opinion of most celebrities. I completely agree with that. And 99% of the time, I'm just like, can we stop talking to celebrities? We don't care about them. They have nothing interesting to say about the world. Why are we asking them about complex issues? But I think Palestine is a very specific situation that exists outside of that. Because this is like an event that is happening right now that is going to be one for the books. Like this is a huge historical moment with lots of momentum. And it's something that's been talked about everywhere. And Jamila Jamil, as a woman of colour who always advocates for the marginalised, or at least that's her brand. Her brand is advocating for women of colour. I think it's fair for women of colour to want her to talk about Palestine or at least to like 
show support for Palestine when it was such a huge issue, when other celebrities are doing it. It's not like she was the first person asked to talk about a contentious issue that no one knows anything about. Like, this is at a time where fucking everybody is talking about Palestine. Like, John Oliver has his fucking video on Palestine. Like, it is everywhere. It is so saturated in our pop culture sphere at the moment, not just in the news, but in, like, entertainment and everywhere everybody is talking about it. You do have a moral obligation to comment. You actually do, in that moment, have a moral obligation to comment. It is, you know, it this exists outside of the typical, like, yes, I can't cover everything situation. This is, like, a specific cause that the world has united upon and is either supporting or condemning. You have a moral obligation to speak up. If, if your politics and your career and your personality are built on, I guess, uplifting women of colour, like, that's her thing. That's what she does. And, like, Palestinian women are women of colour. Like, where are you in this conversation? I think, and this is going to, I guess, lead me to the second half of this conversation, which is, I guess, selective activism as a whole, not just in terms of Jamila Jamil, who is like a little case study, but as a whole, because um, somebody else asked me in one of my Ask Me questions, Instagram stories, thoughts on selective activism, I can't get over my close friends who do this. And my response to that was just like, I'm sympathetic depending on the context, because like Mitch mentioned earlier, of course, it's exhausting. And basically impossible to cover every single issue all the time. It's impossible. You can't talk about everything. You can't have a deep understanding of everything. I don't know everything all the time. And honestly, I get a lot of DMs to talk about things. And I don't talk about every single one of them because it's hard and I don't have the time. But like, you have to balance that with also just like your moral responsibilities. And I also just don't believe that most people just are exhausted by it and don't have the time for it. I think that's like the issue here because most selective activism is not fueled by exhaustion. It's fueled by not giving a fuck, being a bit racist or not wanting to affect your social standing. Like that's where most selective activism comes from. Because most people are out here not even doing the bare minimum. Like, how are you exhausted when you're not fucking doing anything for politics, right? Like, there's a lot of people, and I see this especially with some groups of white people, where they kind of weaponize any kind of fragile part of their life at the moment or any kind of past of mental illness or even current, like, neurodivergency and being like, oh, I'm I'm having this struggle, therefore I'm not going to talk about any politics because I, like... I'm already too exhausted. And it's just like, that's not a good enough excuse for me because what about all the people of colour that have the same issues as you? Because uh, having a mental illness is obviously not white specific. And in fact, like disproportionately affects people of colour who have to fucking live in like a stellar colonial world. What about those people? They have the exact same issues as you without the race and class privileges. And they are out there talking about these things because it's fucking important to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was going to say, if disengaging from politics is a possibility for you, you're probably doing okay. I think a lot of people weaponize self-care and mental illness and their marginalized identity uh, to defend and justify their lack of interest or even investment in political issues or even just like not doing any meaningful action. It's like, oh, like I'm not going to do this, but I have certain illness or I'm of certain marginalized position. I'm already oppressed, so I don't owe the world anything. And it's like, that's some bullshit. Like, even with like, what the tweet said, I guess, about Jamila Jamil, and just, she basically turned the criticism of her silence around Palestine to be like, I'm a woman of colour, you can't demand things of me, like, I'm oppressed. And it's like, sis, so am I. <laughs> I'm also an oppressed woman of colour, I'm not going to stop fucking supporting and uplifting marginalised communities because I'm also oppressed. Like, every single oppression is connected. We're all in this together. Uplifting other marginalised people is going to uplift myself because all of our oppression is rooted under fucking capitalism. But anyway, I mean, we can have another conversation about that. 
But the point that I'm trying to make here is selective activism is often just like people masquerading their particular issue when actually it's just like a really self-serving kind of self-indulgent, self-pitying, victimizing kind of situation where they just don't want to do something. Selective activism is often racist. It often serves capitalism and colonialism. It's often self-serving for that individual just look at the amount of white women even, like for at least in my context, when I'm around other white women who claim to be just as political as me, they champion sex positivity, mental health support, abortion rights, general like liberal feminist ideas, and then are completely fucking silent when it comes to race issues like Black Lives Matter, like Palestine, like First Nations rights, um, like indigenous serenity, you know, situa- like things that are like just as important that are like not interesting to this individual because they don't see those issues as feminist issues because they don't consider women of these minorities as relevant to their reality. You know, like, that's what this is at the moment. And while Jamila Jamil is a woman of colour, she's also of a completely different class to a lot of us, being, like, fucking rich, (laughs) right? And so, like, her brand of feminism is not relevant to Palestinian people or to, like, oppressed First Nations people or to, like, poor, marginalised women. That brand of feminism is fucking useless. Like, when you're poor and trying to get by, you're not really thinking about... Uh, like Kim Kardashian's diet tease, which is like a huge thing that Jamila talks about a lot. You know, that's not really the level of feminism that you fucking need right now. And so I think, I don't know, my, my overarching take, my main point on this issue of selective activism and how some people just seem to not give a fuck about politics and apparently the reason that they don't is because like of their specific marginalized identity. When you are part of a settler colonial group, residing on stolen indigenous land, when you actively benefit every single day off the oppression of the people around you, you have a fucking responsibility to be political. It's a moral obligation, in my opinion. Like, our livelihood that we have relies on the continued exploitation of indigenous land, of working class people, of black women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, everything that I have right now I have because indigenous people were murdered in in Australia when fucking... Uh, the colonizers came. Like, you have to be aware every single day that everything you have comes from exploitation. And because of that, it is your moral duty to talk about politics. Like, it just is. Jamila Jamil is fucking rich because of capitalism. So it's her duty to talk about things like Palestine. Like, I just think it's that simple. And I think it's the same for any of your white friends who aren't rich or even any, any of your friends, I guess, not even white specific, just like people, like, in general, all of us benefit of exploitation. Especially if you're in Australia as well, like especially if you're on colonized land where genocide is actively taking place and you're benefiting off that genocide, it is your job to talk about these things. Like there's no, I don't give a fuck about this selective activism bullshit. Do as much as you can. Obviously we all need breaks. I need breaks too. That's why we only do one episode a week and sometimes we don't do an episode. It's necessary to rest. But to just never talk about shit or to not talk about things that are clearly so important and so timely that is some bullshit and you are coming up with excuses and I don't care for them. And if you are not going to talk about it, just make sure that you're not instead talking about the fact that you're not going to talk about it. Like <laughs> yes. just just disengage, just like just completely disengage. Don't don't make that part of your agenda. Yeah, there's no need to get on a fucking pedestal and like let everybody know that it's perfectly fine to not talk about these things because you don't owe the world shit because you do owe the world shit. We all owe each other. We all owe each other as a community help and understanding and validation and acceptance. Mm, It's like activism against activism. (laughs) Such bullshit. Anyway, 
let's move into our second topic for today, which is on medical racism, which I know seems like completely unrelated to the first topic, but I actually feel like there's an overarching theme here of just like refusal to talk about race issues. I feel like today's episode's overarching thing is too many people refuse to fucking talk about race or to acknowledge that race plays a hand in issues. So that's what we're talking about today. Isn't that what we're talking about every episode, really? Yeah, I feel like this is just what it comes down to all the time. I'm like, this is racist and none of y'all will fucking admit it. (laughs) (laughs) That's just my brand. But I mean, someone has to do it. Uh, Okay, so this conversation that we're going to have is very much rooted and kind of has grown around the recent news story of Ashwarya Aswath, who was a seven-year-old girl who died in Perth Children's Hospital of sepsis. Uh, after her parents were there with her for like nearly three hours begging for help and begging the staff to look at their daughter because they were scared she was going to die and they were basically told that she was fine, that she's low priority, that this isn't a problem, she's just got a little fever, it'll be all right. And then their daughter died in their arms and it's really, really, really tragic. I'm just going to, maybe maybe before I get into the discourse surrounding it, I'm just going to read you a bit from an SBS article just to summarize what actually happened for those of you who aren't across the situation. It's been kind of ongoing for like maybe two months, but let me read this article. Ashwarya died on Easter Saturday of sepsis from a bacterial infection related to group A streptococcus, despite her parents begging to see a doctor at the hospital's emergency department for nearly two hours. Ashwarya's parents arrived with their daughter at the emergency department at Perth Children's Hospital at 5.31pm on Saturday the 3rd of April, after Ashwarya developed fever-like symptoms at home. At that time, there were 41 patients in the emergency department, with 19 doctors and 14 nurses on duty. A nurse assessed Ashwarya one minute later. Her parents say the triage included checks of their daughter's heart rate, blood pressure and temperature, but the nurse couldn't test Ashwarya's oxygen levels because, quote, her hands were too cold. This is a quote now. The nurse said that the heartbeat is a bit high. She explained it's because my daughter has a flu and her body is trying to fight it out. And the blood pressure was on the lower side, but she said that was normal. Mr. Chavitupra said that was the father of Ashwarya. And when she took the temperature, it was definitely on the higher side. Then they tried to check the oxygen level. They couldn't read it. We asked them why. And they said, because the hands are cold and sometimes the machine doesn't read it. That's all the explanation that we got. The nurse allocated Ashwarya a triage score of four, the second lowest priority patient on the Australasian triage scale, to be seen by a doctor within 60 minutes. Ashwarya ended up dying, like, I think, minutes after she was assessed by a doctor eventually when they had been there for two hours. There are two quotes by the parents that I think are really important and they are going to be the basis of what I kind of think happened. So here's what the father said. I think some of the staff were ignoring us because they just didn't want to talk to us. When we approached the staff and we told them what happened, the staff just said the doctors would come and take a look. They didn't want to take the responsibility, he said. Then the mother said, We never saw any compassion for anyone. We found the staff were a bit rude and we found the level of humanity they had for us was very low. I want to start our discussion on this by pointing out this was in Perth. And I like very wholeheartedly believe that this situation happened because of medical racism. These parents took, mind you, this happened two months ago when we actually had increased COVID cases across Australia. This is when we were like starting to get a few more cases and we had to have a few more restrictions. Like during a time where COVID was a thing and this, these parents' kid had fever-like symptoms, they should have been a priority case already. Like just because of the way that Australia is handling COVID 
And Western Australia has been fucking bragging about how much they've like really been amazing at dealing with COVID and how little COVID cases they've had and it's all under control because of how amazing their medical system has been and they've been so great on top of it. Because of like all the context around like I guess what's happening in the medical scene in Western Australia and the fact that there's been a lot of pride around their ability to just keep on top of shit. I think it's pretty fucking ridiculous that this happened. Like, this is a seven-year-old child who had a really high fever. And, like, it's pretty normal to take a child that age to the hospital for a fever. Like, that is usually the recommended response because fevers can be fatal at that age. And then, like, Ashwari ended up having, like, blurry vision. She ended up losing her vision for a little bit. And obviously the parents freaked out because the daughter was like, I need to watch my face. Like, I can't see anything. My eyes are blurry, blah, blah, blah. The nurses were like, it's fine. Like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And it's just like, when I read that, I was like, I'm sorry. I have fucking never heard of that being normal. If a child is like starting to lose their vision after having a fever, something is fucking wrong. Like, something is so drastically wrong. And the fact that these patients were not prioritized. And look, these are, there's been some conflicting reports, but I have seen a couple of commentaries here and there that apparently other patients were quite distressed at the daughter's situation and also wanted her to be treated. But don't quote me on that because some news articles reported that and some didn't. So I'm maybe a bit skeptical of where that information came from. But to me, this just seems like racism. Like to me, it just seems like given the fact that staff were dismissive towards this family, who, by the way, are like dark skinned South Asian, very obviously people of color that aren't like the white Australian type. I just feel like it had to be motivated by racism. They talk about how rude the staff were to them, that they were dismissive of them, that they didn't want to talk to them, that they kind of just avoided interactions with them. And I'm like, this is not normal in a fucking hospital setting. The father eventually tried to carry Ashwarya to the emergency department and then the staff over there weren't helpful to him either. And he's like carrying his daughter who's fucking out of it in his arm, being like begging for help and no one listened. And then she died. Like the tragedy of this is so unimaginable. I can't imagine what it's like to be a family with your daughter begging for help and nobody is helping you and she dies in your arms. Like, I just can't even imagine the fucking trauma that this family's had to go through. And then to, like, have the media storm that's happening afterwards. I'm going to read you the response by Western Australia Premier Mark McGowan in terms of, like, the outrage that's been happening around Ashwarya's death. He said, No system is perfect, but our system in Western Australia is one of the best or the best in the world. And I'm just like... Are you fucking kidding me? Like, is that your response to this situation? Is to just be like, no system is perfect. Shit happens. But like, it's really, it's generally really good here. First of all, Australia is nowhere near like the best in the world when it comes to like medical care. That's like those fucking Northern European countries. I don't know what that's even referring to. But second of all, just the application of like, no system is perfect, but ours is pretty good. I just, I can't help but read a really passive aggressive I know it's bad, but you're lucky to be here vibe coming from it. And I shared this on my Instagram stories yesterday because I wasn't sure if it was just me like reading a bit too into it and feeling a bit defensive, but it definitely felt to me like, yeah, it's bad, but it's amazing here. As in like, you should still be grateful that you get to be here. Like it felt patronizing, it felt passive aggressive and it felt like a racist microaggression. Uh, And when I shared that on Instagram, like so many of you responded and were like, oh my God, yes, there is nothing not fucking racist about this situation and the way it's been handled. And the fact that the government is just like totally not taking responsibility for what's happened to this family and just like either saying, oh, look, like nurses are just overworked. Like I don't, I just don't fucking buy it. 
Um, especially because one of my Instagram followers actually DM'd me. She's a woman of color and her partner is also POC. And she said that she's been to a hospital near the hospital that Ashwarya died at and that the staff there were really fucking racist to her and like extremely vile and the situation was just like traumatic. And I'm just not surprised by that because it's fucking Perth and we all know Perth is racist. Like it is not a surprise that Western Australia and Perth in particular are fucking racist. These are like really white, really right wing areas. I just can't believe how like the broader kind of government conversation and media conversation are just not talking about racism. I'm not seeing the word racist anywhere. Yeah, and we know for a fact that systemic racism exists in you know the medical system in Australia. Like many government-funded studies have been done specifically into the discrimination against First Nations people in hospitals, and there's no reason to suspect that that doesn't extend to other uh, marginalized groups in this country. And I think it's you know especially to point out that Ashwari's family are like not even like vaguely white passing. Like these are people who are extremely, they're like very dark skinned South Asians with like foreign accents. Like it's just already, they're so otherized. And it's like very clearly a race thing to me, especially because of this part from the inquiry. So just to let you know, there was an inquiry, an internal one. I hate internal inquiries. I think most of the time they're fucking useless. Every inquiry should be external, but also inquiries do nothing. But anyway, there was an internal inquiry into this and the full report has actually not been released, which already, I mean, I'll talk about that in a second. But here is a quote from the report regarding what happened. The lack of a comprehensive triage, including a limited primary assessment of the patient, resulted in a triage score of four, which led the patient to be allocated a wait time of one hour to be seen by medical staff, which contributed in a delay in medical intervention. The perceived lack of cultural awareness by staff for cowled families, cowled is culturally and linguistically diverse, and patients may have resulted in non-recognition of the family's significant concerns, which may have contributed to the delay in clinical intervention. That quote is fucking bullshit to me (laughs) because it like implies that race was an issue, but then says, but we don't know. Like, yeah, maybe they didn't get the care that they needed because they are people of colour and the staff I have no sensitivity in terms of cultural awareness, but who knows? And it's like, but we do know, and it's your job to know. Why are you, like, putting an implication that... And also just, like, the way they've, like, managed to say it without ever mentioning the word race is also not lost upon me. But the implication that, oh, yeah, maybe this happened because of a lack of cultural sensitivity. It may have happened. It may have happened. The results are inconclusive. It's such a fucking scapegoat. And, like, the whole point of an inquiry is to figure this the fuck out. So just, like, put in it could have happened. And the fact that, like, no one's really talking about the fact that that's in the report. And the fact that it didn't say race. And the fact that it, like, hasn't really taken into account the local racism of this area is frustrating to me. But I do think that despite what a shit quote that is, for me, that, like, personally kind of just, like, confirms my suspicions a little bit. Because they would not have included that in the inquiry if they, like, could get away with it. They wouldn't have. Like, they, nobody wants to admit that racism is a problem, especially internal reviews of hospitals. Because if they admit that racism is a problem, they have to fucking sort out racism, and they're not equipped to do that because this is an institutionalised issue. Back to um the fact that the report also <laughs> is not actually fully released. So they've only released very, very specific tidbits of information from the report. Like, that quote, there's a quote about, like, just what the triage was and what could have been done better and, like, the numbers of the staff that were there. Because they're kind of putting this to, like, a uh, frontline workers are doing their best and some of these things happen and it's just the way it goes. Like, it's hard being a nurse. 
And I just really dislike the fact that like this is becoming that conversation. I don't think this is a conversation about staff shortages. Staff shortages are a real issue in hospitals and nurses are treated like shit and underpaid. And I don't mean to demean any of that because I think it's true, but I don't think that's actually a relevant part of this conversation because are you telling me that would have happened to Ashwarya if she was a little blonde, blue-eyed, seven-year-old white girl? Are you telling me this would have happened to her? No fucking way. If that was a little white girl that died like that in the hospital, the world would be in fucking chaos. The media outrage, all the shock jocks like Andrew Bolts would be out here being like, this is fucking ridiculous. The government has failed us. Like we need an overhaul. I mean, he would come at it from a really right wing perspective. But the point is, like everybody, no matter what your political stance, would have something to say about this issue and would be sympathetic to this family. But right now, nobody is. Nobody is even talking about it. When asked um, if the government was going to like financially compensate this family or give them some form of financial aid because their daughter died, they said, oh, it's far too early to talk about that. And I'm like, okay, well, how soon? Because she's been dead for two months. Like, how soon is too soon? This family is traumatized because of institutionalized racism, because the like public healthcare system failed them. Their daughter is dead. There's no coming back from that. Like, I can't... Every time I think about it, I just tear up a little bit because I just can't fucking imagine like the absolute trauma and heartbreak. They're like the day before that, their kid was probably like laughing and chattering and having a great time. I'm going to say the photos of her, like especially the photos that SBS has are just so beautiful and it makes me cry because they're pictures of her in action. They're pictures of this seven-year-old like laughing and playing and being goofy and mucking around like kids do. I mean, my sister is six. You know, if something like this happened to her, I'd be fucking burning down like the world. Um, But it's just, it's so frustrating that people are just brushing this off as like a these things happen situation because these things don't happen that's why this is on the fucking news because these things don't happen that's why this is such a big deal you know what does happen racism happens quite a lot in the medical field it happens all the time i mean there are so many studies not just australian but like all over the world it's why black women in america are more than twice as likely as white women to die in childbirth not because like of a biological thing it's because doctors just don't give a fuck about them and just assume that they're fine that they're resilient that they're strong black women that they're they're not really in pain they're just being they're just saying it but we know these like we have all these stereotypes of how these women function and we know that they'll be fine and then they die like this happens all the time um like mitch mentioned earlier look at kalia mckella for those of you who aren't familiar this was a really fucking big news story i think it was a couple of years ago now no, it was last year. Was it last it was, year? I it was April. Yeah, I, I remember. I actually remember when this went viral. Uh, Kalia McKellar was an Aboriginal teenager. She was dragged out of St. Vincent Hospital in Melbourne and literally left to freeze on the ground outside in a pool of her own vomit. It was fucked up. She was saved by a fellow patient who was a university student. Her name was Audrey. So Audrey was like a patient in the hospital, saw Kalia outside and was like, oh my God, like, is she okay? And Audrey has diabetes. And so things like passing out and vomiting like are part of her illness. And she was really concerned that like Kalia might've had the same thing. And she was like worried for her. She kind of ran out to like check if she was okay and still alive and stuff. Um, and then she tried to get the staff to come and help her because she was literally like right outside the hospital on the fucking ground. Uh, mind you... <laughs> This was all in Reconciliation Week as well, which I think is important to note. And the staff were like, oh, she's been treated. And Audrey was kind of just like, what the fuck? She's literally lying on the ground. Like, she's going to die. Like, you need to help her. And the hospital just refused. Like, the staff, this is like, this is not 
hospital management. This is fucking hospital staff, the kind of staff that we're saying, oh, you know, they're doing that. This is that staff. Um, they refused to help Kilia, and so Audrey whipped out her cell phone and started recording, and the staff freaked out. I'm just going to read you a bit of the coverage, uh, just from an SBS news article as well, about the situation. A university student who recently posted footage to social media of the treatment of a sick Aboriginal woman by staff at an inner-city Melbourne hospital has called for greater cultural awareness training in the health system. Master student Audrey Kearns, 24, was standing outside the emergency room of St. Vincent's Hospital in the inner Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy when she observed Kalia McKellar laying unconscious on the concrete just metres from the entrance of the emergency care centre. The state I found Kalia in when I came out of the hospital, being completely unresponsive, laying next to her own vomit, that is the state I was in when I was admitted to St. Vincent Hospital with diabetic ketoacidosis, Miss Keynes told NITV News on Tuesday. I was exactly like her. And actually, one of the first thoughts that went through my mind is, is she a type 1 diabetic? When Miss Keynes attempted to bring the situation to the attention of the emergency room staff, she was told Miss McKellar had already been treated. Miss Kearns then asked for a blanket for Miss McKellar, who was laying exposed to Melbourne's cold weather, but a request was refused. It was then that Miss Kearns, accompanied by a friend, resorted to sourcing a blanket from her ward inside the hospital. She said she then waited an hour for a staff member to come outside and that they only did so after security noticed that she had begun filming on her phone. In confronting footage later uploaded to Facebook, Miss Kearns and her companion were then accosted by hospital and security staff. Despite occurring in a public place, a security guard is seen repeatedly trying to snatch the phone out of Miss Kearns' hand and directing her not to continue videoing. Another staff member is then heard threatening to have Miss Kearns' care compromised if she did not stop filming. Which ward are you from? Because I'm not sure you're going to be allowed back in the hospital with this kind of behaviour, the staff member tells Miss Kearns. So Kearns, uh, she was actually then denied insulin. She's fucking diabetic. She was denied insulin by the hospital as like, I guess, punishment for this. And she ended up discharging herself because she was scared she was going to die. She said she believes that there is like this deeper issue of systemic racism, obviously, uh, not only at St. Vincent's Hospital, but in the Australian healthcare system generally. And also, can I just point out a similarity in this case? This hospital also did an internal inquiry, which never fucking means anything. What does an internal inquiry even do? But just like this is another example of like somebody who clearly needed medical attention, probably could have died. At least Kalia, like somebody came and helped her and she survived. But like she could have died that day. She very much could have died that day. And the hospital were pretty fucking happy to let her be that way. And this is hospital staff. This is like not management. This is like fucking everyday staff that are doing this. Yeah, I mean, I've really been wanting to talk about this because if you watch the video, which is actually quite sickening, uh, what you see is with uh, Audrey filming the security uh, and the staff where the security actually like assaults her trying to- Yeah, they literally assault her. Um, Continually- the doctor is like, well, do you have any like medical education? Like, what's your medical knowledge? Like, how could you like, how do you know that this is wrong? Like, like, what do you know? The gaslighting. And, and, yeah, and, and the security as well is like, oh, like, do you have a medical background? It's like, And it's the way that this sort of, it's almost elitism is used to suppress any criticism of like sociological or racist systemic issues that we know exist. And we don't want to necessarily criticize any individual workers because it is a systemic issue but then to be gaslit and then suppressed and silenced uh because it's like oh well do you have a medical background are you a doctor are you a nurse how do you know she's like how do you know that we haven't taken care of her we said she's okay so she's okay 
And or, like that girl was obviously not fucking okay. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's, which, it's what I feel has happened with Ashwarya is we're like, okay, well, the nurses, they said that she was fine and they're the nurses and we have no right to be criticizing their work. We have no, we don't know what it's like. They're obviously professionals. Like, you know, this is out of our hands. Things happen. And I just think that's fucking bullshit. Because, yeah, I mean, also, I mean, nurses do also make mistakes, I should say. Like, fucking, the fact that we can just accept that is not okay. And also because it's, like, a medical professional's responsibility to take care of patients. And, like, yeah, it is fucked up if you let one die. Like, it's literally your job. I also think it's worth having a conversation about, like, the political climate around COVID and how that's affected our attitude regarding frontline workers as well as our response to criticisms of them. Because I think, obviously, we have every respect for frontline workers. They are overworked underpaid they're fucking workers and we're anti-capitalists there's already solidarity there but i also think that at the moment like given covid and the political scene around covid and how much that's intensified a lot of issues there's a huge tension i feel like there's like people are usually one of two groups either you have become really protective of frontline workers because they were doing the brunt of the work in covid to make sure we survived and they were doing the most to get us through this fucking pandemic obviously you're either in a group where like you feel like an intense loyalty and protectiveness towards frontline workers or you're in this fucking anti-vax like they're all evil government drones that are gonna fill us with fucking chips i don't know what the anti-vaxxers believe but the point is there seems to be this really intense binary of like deep mistrust of medical professionals or deep loyalty and protectiveness to medical professionals and i like I'm not really, like, I don't really care too much about that, but I think this scenario is a really interesting example of how race intersects with this issue. Because I feel like prior to this moment, I'm generally very defensive for frontline workers, and I'm just like, don't fucking criticize them. You don't know what they're going through, and also it's rough. It's a rough job. But this is a scenario where it's like, people can be marginalized and still fucking hurt each other. (laughs) You know, like, nurses can be overworked and underpaid and still be racist and leave brown people to die. It fucking happens. I'm sure the workers that were pretty happy to let Kalia be passed out outside and die were also like working class people that are struggling, but that doesn't absolve them of their responsibility to try and help other people. And that doesn't mean they can't be racist. And I feel feel like there's a lot of white defensiveness around frontline workers. And there are a lot of people of color and especially women of color who are very disproportionately affected by racism in the medical field that are out here like trying to talk about this issue and trying to bring to light their traumatic experiences with our hospital staff have treated them how doctors have treated them and then we've got like other people being like don't don't criticize frontline workers like you know they've saved us and it's like that doesn't fucking stop them from being racist even just like i actually just forgot about this until right this second I'm going to try and find it after this episode, but there's a TikTok going around at the moment of a train in, I think it's a tram actually in Melbourne, where a woman, like a boomer aged white woman is totally having a go at an Asian guy and telling him to wear a mask. Mind you, she is surrounded by other white people who are not wearing a mask and she has targeted this Asian man and is like, like trying to fight him because he's not wearing a mask. And then another guy, like a few other white men stand up for the Asian guy and they're like, fuck off, you're being racist. Why are you targeting this guy? He's Asian. And her and her friend are like, we're frontline workers. And they use that as an excuse for their racism. Like, we're frontline workers. You know, it's not that we're being racist. We believe in our safety and our health. There's literally 
everybody else on this tram who's not wearing a mask and they went for this guy. That's a great example of what we're talking about right now with like frontline workers weaponizing their medical history and understanding in order to fucking target, assault and harass people of color. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it doesn't need to be said because we're not coming after frontline workers. I feel like that's a given. We're coming after racist people. Mm. And often there are racist people everywhere. There are racist people everywhere. Some of them are frontline workers. And every institution carries with it systemic racial issues and the medical field is no different. It's just the way it is. Yeah, and I think we just need to be really critical of situations like Ashwarya's where the government is pretty happy to like put it, just like brush it under the rug and just be like, I know things happen, it's rough, isn't it? But like we have the best, you know, hospital in the world or whatever, like we're so advanced, we're so progressive, things just happen, we can't control everything because that's some bullshit. This was clearly like a racial issue. It is people of colour that are disproportionately affected and die because of racism. And like this is a conversation that we need to have and we can't just let this thing go, it's just another accident. It's not an accident. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely listeners. And specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Beck, Rachel, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought-provoking or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sleeha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.com forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here's a thing though, podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. And we have a Facebook group, which we will link as well. Feel free to join that, but you have to answer the, all the questions if you want me to accept it. I don't accept requests. I don't answer questions. No exceptions. No exceptions. Sorry. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye.